Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that Foreign Key podcast. Uh, this week's topic, we're going to talk about things in a Foreign Key plan that just don't look right. Um, and uh, without uh, further ado, uh, go to that foreignkeysite.com for further information on uh, all our events. We're doing a plan sponsor um, conference in... October. Uh, details are on that foreignkeysite.com as well as um, as well as um, a plan provider conference, that foreign K national virtual conference. We're doing it again. Uh, that will be in January. Uh, if you get the emails uh, from me, then you will know that uh, you know you can certainly sign in and sign up for free. And of course, we're going to bring back the retirement plan roundtable uh, for those events, as well as plot some um, sessions of that uh, throughout the year. I think we may take uh, we may certainly take August off. I don't know if we'll do July, but uh, those are uh, certainly fun events. And I would suggest that you go to YouTube and see what we're uh, all about with uh, all the virtual events uh, that we've been doing since the beginning of time. Uh, obviously, a lot of virtual events uh, back in uh, the COVID period and whatnot. But the National Virtual Conference, you could see all the stuff that we've been doing over the years, as well as uh, virtual bunches where we did interviews and obviously the last couple of retirement plan roundtables. As far as plans are going, um, first of all, I'm recording this on a interesting night. You know, as they say with Passover, uh, they have the four questions, and why is this night different than all other nights? Uh, usually I record on a Tuesday morning, but this week is kind of screwy because uh, kids are, uh, uh, both of my kids are at the prom, and uh, I got to stay up, and what better way to stay up than take care of your uh, weekly uh, activities, and so that's why I'm recording tonight uh, before I pick them up from the prom, and of course they got this weird thing. First of all, the prom is after graduation, which makes no sense. And then they do this prom, and then a something called dawn delirium, where they have the people, uh, you know, the kids, uh, uh, continuing until six in the morning, which uh, is not going to make me uh, very fun on Tuesday. But uh, in terms of retirement plans, there are obviously things that just don't look right, um, and uh, I'm all about impressions. Um, if they don't look right, um, then people will get the wrong idea. And, um, you know, there's certain things that people do on the, you know, uh, in my town, in Oceanside, where I live. Uh, people who are, you know, we're not an incorporated village, so we don't have a mayor, we don't have a city council, we don't have a village council. So basically we have a lot of power brokers who do things that just on paper don't look right. Hiring buddies, hiring relatives, hiring cronies, um... And, you know, no bid contracts and not hiring union workers for government jobs and this, this, and that. Just things just, just, just don't look right. And if you give the wrong impression, people will take the wrong impression. That's just not a good idea. And obviously, the top of my list is hiring relatives of plant providers. Listen, first job I ever got, uh, my son's starting a job with, uh, with this camp. Uh, he's going to be a uh, staff member. And, uh, um, and, uh, uh, when I, so my son was, you know, working at camp and, um, I got my first job working for my dad, actually working for 
my father's partner, my father's partner kind of owned the business and I was being paid $3.35 an hour as a 14 year old in 1986. But you know, small family owned businesses, nepotism is part of the game. But when hiring plant providers, it's not part of the game. It, plant providers need to be uh, picked on the up and up. Uh, plant fiduciary uh, can't make any transactions that benefit themselves in any way. And one can argue that if you hire your wife as the advisor to a plan, then clearly you're financially benefiting from it. But I still think on the up and up, hiring your cousin as the financial advisor just because he's your cousin, that's not a good idea. It just doesn't look right. Um, uh, I, I may be a greater risk attorney, but you know I, I think it looks bad if my cousin would hire me. Uh, of course, I've never had a cousin that was ever successful in business, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, but uh, it just, you know, again, I think it's important that everything is on the up and up. Uh, plan providers have to be hired, um, you know, through a, a, a prudent process. Um, and, you know, it's really um, important to hire people through a rational process picking out providers, interviewing them and whatnot. And I think it's an absolute mistake to um, pick somebody just because they're related to you. Uh, and again, um, private what private owned companies do and, and hire their you know kids as, as, as business people and all that stuff. And uh, you know that, that's certainly a problem. Um, and, uh, you know, it's all about creating impressions and the wrong impression gives people the idea, especially like a Department of Labor agent, that something is obviously amiss. And uh, I don't think plant sponsors uh, should be doing that. And uh, next on the hit list, uh, not having a best policy statement. You know, an IPS is really drafted for a retirement plan you know, that really describes the plan's criteria for selecting and replacing investment options. And obviously, um, it's not legally required, but, you know, it's one of those things that uh, uh, when a Department of Labor agent asks you about it, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's legally required. Uh, so while it's not legally required, you better get one. And uh, obviously, a plan that doesn't have one, it's problematic. It's not something I want to admit to the Department of Labor, uh, but I've been in audits where you know the plan sponsor just hired a new advisor and there were some issues with the plan. They had to fess up and say we don't have an IPS, and you know investment policy statement is you know tells you what the process is, and of course in my opinion, having an IPS and not following it is far worse than not having one uh, because you know it shows that you had a process in place and you really ignored it. And that's a breach of fiduciary duty. You know, so often um, you have these cases uh, about plan costs, and the complaint is, is that uh, paying too much in fees is a breach of fiduciary duty. That in and of itself is not. You actually have to show that uh, paying the you know expenses, proving it, uh, you know that it is a breach of fiduciary duty. And uh, again, it, it to me it just in this day and age, you know, where over almost 70% of plans, I think, have one these days, the 30% that don't, um, it's just a, a recipe, um, you know, 
to, to me, to the government, uh, that something is amiss. Um, it's all about, you know, the reason why I have IPS out there is, you know, RISA 404C, limiting liability uh, for participants directing their own investments. Uh, it, it's funny, the, talking about graduation, and uh, it was my son's graduation on Friday, and uh, what's hilarious is uh, one of the other kids in the graduating class, his grandmother is that HR director that I always talk about um, at that law firm in Long Island. Uh, the story goes, obviously, for the hundredth time or probably a thousandth time, uh, they had a plan. They asked me to look at it. You know, I was working at the firm, just started, and there was no fiduciary process. There was no IPS. There was no investment advisor in the plan, and uh, that was a problem. So it turns out that, again, the grandmother of one of the kids in the class was, was Pat, and <laughs> I walked past her, gave her a dirty look. I don't think she saw me. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wasn't going to make anything. It was my son's day, and I was certainly not going to ruin it by uh, telling her how much uh, I've used that story as fodder for my writings over the last 13 years. But, uh, you know, next on the hit list, obviously not having a financial advisor on the plan. So, you know, again, Pat, 10 years, the plan didn't have a financial advisor on the plan. You know, the whole purpose of financial advisors is to limit a you know, the, limit the liability of the plan sponsor. Um, again, I've never thought, and I still to this day, I think the, when people talk about picking funds, I think the least important part of what a financial advisor does for a 401k plan sponsor is pick funds. Uh, because I think anybody can pick a five-star fund. These Morningstar profiles are really not hard to figure out. Obviously, you're uh, picking uh, index funds. It makes things obviously a lot easier. So in my opinion, not having a financial advisor on the plan just doesn't look right. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had situations where, you know, uh, there is no advisor in the plan. And, you know, when there's no advisor in the plan, how do investments get picked? How are participants given enough information to make informed investment decisions, which would limit a plan sponsor's liability in the RISA 404C? Not having that advisor missing like the biggest piece of the puzzle for a plan sponsor to limit their liability. Uh, next on the hit list, um, using the same mutual fund company for almost every investment option. Um, you know, listen, uh, I'm a big fan of T. Rowe Price, I'm a big fan of Vanguard, and you know, big fan of Fidelity. You know, if you're going to pick any of these folks to be the TPA and or record keeper for the plan, Obviously, you're doing it because you like their funds. Um, but, you know, the, the problem is, is uh, there isn't a fund company that's perfect for every uh, situation. And I think it's problematic. You know, years ago, I did a plan review for an advisor looking at a, I, I told this about a, a well-known Long Island mall, um, an outdoor mall. And they were you know, on the T. Rowe Price platform, which I'm a 316 on for a couple of peps. And, you know, the only problem was that every fund on the lineup was a T. Rowe Price fund. And I'm a big fan of T. Rowe Price, but uh, it just doesn't look right where you have, you know, 12 to 15 mutual fund funds on the platform and all of them happen to be the same fund company. 
Uh, it just doesn't look right. There isn't a fund company that is the right fit for every type of investment objective in the mutual fund world. Um, it's just my two cents, and I just think the practicality. Uh, next, uh, something that just doesn't look right, low participation, low participation rate on the 401k portion. Um, you know, obviously, you know, small employers will have small assets. Uh, the problem is, is when you have a low participation rate for the plan, to me, that's something that's a miss, especially, you know, in today's world where automatic enrollment is a thing. Um, and automatic enrollment can certainly be part of the situation that can alleviate the low participation rate on a plan and help a plan out, especially when it comes to compliance testing on the EDP side. Um, can certainly help uh, with top-heavy uh, as well because you're getting more and more assets of uh, non-highly compensated employees. But uh, one aspect of low participation rate, low participation rate that uh, you know I've said over the years is uh, anybody that's got 72 mutual funds on a lineup, um, you know that that depresses participation. Uh, there's no reason why a plan should have two uh, large-cap growth funds uh, or, you know, and two large blends and two large values. It's, it's, it's problematic when you have five or six large-cap uh, mutual funds. Uh, studies have shown that, you know, more funds uh, isn't better. Uh, more funds, while there's more choice, it actually decreases participation in the plan because participants are overwhelmed. Uh, less is more, especially when it comes to mutual fund lineups. Obviously, something wrong is when a plan sponsor fails to uh, benchmark fees on a consistent basis. Um, and, and it reminds me of Long Island here in Nassau County. Uh, we have such a crazy um, assessment system for property taxes, which there's no rhyme or reason. And years ago, I want to say about 20-some-odd years ago, it was a challenge where it shows that houses in African-American uh, communities like Freeport and Roosevelt, they actually had higher assessment rates than other uh, white communities. That's a fact. Um, but what's still interesting now is, is that if you challenge your assessment, um, it really lowers, it really kind of stunts the growth of your assessment, your tax increases. Uh, you get you may get a reduction. So, you know, I always try to challenge it because, you know, in the years where I didn't challenge it, um, my taxes just increased exponentially. And so there was one time where I challenged it for the first time in three or four years, and I got a huge refund. And so effectively, the folks that don't uh, fight the reassessment in Nassau County are effectively paying the taxes of everybody else because the people who fight for lower re lower assessments uh, are, you know, get money back or uh, basically if they don't get money back, um, their assessment doesn't increase as it does for people who don't protest it. And that's the nature of the system where you have a system where you have these companies that uh, will fight reassessments for you and get like 50% of the, the take. So it's a, it's a crazy system. Uh, thankfully, uh, hopefully one day short, uh, I will no longer be part of this assessment uh, situation. But um, that's no different than a plan sponsor that's not 
checking or benchmarking their fees in a consistent way. Uh, you don't know how much you're paying until you price it out. Um, you know, I, I talked about my backyard, put in a new patio, nice pavers. You know, if we only talked to one guy, we would have been ripped off because he wanted $8,000. He was only going to do pave borders. We found somebody else, same amount of money. Not only did he do all pavers, he also increased this, uh, the footage um, with more pavers for an additional fee that also included our, uh, um, our fire pit. So, you know, we've always gotten hosed on these house projects when we haven't done our duty and, you know, check the fees out and, you know, go consistent and see what's out there. And, you know, when you, you do it on your own uh, for fixing up your house and you screw up, it's money out of your pocket. When you're playing fiduciary, you have a higher duty of care than you do with your own money. So it's uh, obviously a problem if a plan sponsor doesn't benchmark fees on a consistent basis. Next on the hit list, consistently failing compliance tests. Uh, it's something wrong in this day and age, 20-some-odd years of safe harbor plane design. Uh, if a plan is obviously consistently failing, uh, there are certainly mechanisms to fix it rather than refunds and or CUNEC. We could use automatic enrollments to increase participation. Uh, we can do safe harbor plan design. There's so many things that we can do. Um, but, you know, the problem is, is a lot of times you have a third-party administrator who's not creative um, or not communicative with the client and say, you know, listen, this is a problem that you really should fix and please do something. Um, but uh, that's how I see things. And, you know, to me, um, I've always talked about the client that I got because um, we offered a situation where we can fix uh, a consistently failing uh refund where the owner of the company would get a $10,500 refund of a $12,000 deferral simply by putting in a $7,000 CUNIC. Uh, and then going forward, we took that plan, made it a safe harbor plan design, and um, it, it, it's it been working ever since. Uh, last but not least, obviously the most consistent issue to this day for 401k plans is late deposits and salad deferrals. Um, you know, it's funny, I've had a couple of TPAs in the last week ask about that whole 15th day of the next following month and somehow thinking they still could rely on it. Uh, the Department of Labor over the last you know decade plus, uh, they say you got to get in their money in as soon as possible. And obviously, it's a question on Form 5500. Plan sponsors late with their solid deferrals. They have to answer it on their 5500. That makes them a target for an audit. Uh, so these are issues that are big problems, and I think it's important um, for plan sponsors to fix it uh, going forward. Fix it what you, you missed behind, but more importantly, make sure that they're on a basis where it doesn't happen again because... I've never seen a plan sponsor where they've only been late with deferral deposits once. It's always multiple times. Um, if they have multiple locations, that certainly doesn't help things as well. So, in my opinion, it's you know the most frequent error. It's the most avoidable error, and it can be costly uh, if the deposits are rarely late. 
Um, you know, you have to make up for lost earnings. You have to file a 5330. Um, you may got may get contacted by the Department of Labor that you know they didn't get your uh, voluntary fiduciary compliance program application, or they may just simply audit you because you know you answered that you are late on the salary deferrals. So, you know, that's again, that's something that just doesn't look right, and any appearance things not looking right. It's just a target for you to get audited by the IRS and the Department of Labor, and that's not something you want. So I hope this uh, was an enjoyable episode, a little short. I, in the, in, you know, during the whole episode, I had to pick up my kids from prom and getting ready for this Dawn Delirium thing, which I don't understand why they have to have a party after the party. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully my son will win a big prize, but we'll see what happens with that. Probably not. Probably be some, you know, Board of Education members kid or whatever it is. But anyway, tune in, uh, tune in to next week's episode for another episode of the 4K Podcast. Thanks. Bye.